Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome once more to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. This is my humble little Daikaiju podcast, and who am I, you ask? Why, I, as always, am your host, Luke Giaconetti, and I'd like to thank everybody for downloading and listening to this episode. I hope everybody also downloaded and listened to and enjoyed our previous episode, where we talked about the uh, second entry from the Showa Gamera series, Gamera vs. Barrigan, a personal favorite of mine. But today we are not going to be talking about a Showa film, not, we're not even going to be talking about a Hesai film, we're going a little more modern, and we are talking about a Millennium Era film. Now, this we're going to be watching the first film in the Millennium Godzilla series, which of course is Godzilla 2000. Now, this is <laughs> actually the only Godz- Toho Godzilla film that I've seen in the theater, believe it or not, so has a lot of fond memories for me from that screening, which we'll get to in the episode. Going to take a quick break right now. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back on Earth Destruction Directive. Okay, and we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Our movie this time out is Godzilla Millennium, as it was known in Japan, also known as Godzilla 2000 here in the United States. Uh, Godzilla Millennium was released in late December 1999 in Japan. It was released the following August, in August of 2000, in the United States and Canada. The director is Takeo uh, Akawara, uh, producer was Shogo Tomiyami, and the special effects uh, coordinator was Kenji Suzuki. After Y2K, the Godzilla Prediction Network functions independently to study Godzilla and protect his landfalls. Shinoda, his young daughter Io, and eager newspaper photographer Yuki follow Godzilla one night after he comes ashore. They narrowly escape with their lives, although Yuki's film is ruined by Godzilla's radioactivity developing the film inside her camera. 
Meanwhile, the scientists of the government-funded Crisis Control Institute, which is led by Katagiri, who is Shinoda's old friend and current rival, find a 60 million year old asteroid deep in the, J in the Japan Trench. But as they raise the asteroid, it seems to have a mind of its own, first floating up faster than they are trying to raise it, and then taking off into the sky. Godzilla, meanwhile, is engaged by the JSDF after he makes landfall again. The asteroid appears and reveals itself as a UFO armed with a very powerful weapon, and it's searching for genetic information that only Godzilla appears to possess. The UFO fights Godzilla to a standstill, blasting him with its plasma cannon. Godzilla retreats, and the UFO charges up on solar energy. Meanwhile, with some Godzilla cells, Shinoda discovers a secret to Godzilla's regenerative properties, an aspect of his uh, DNA makeup which is called Organizer G1, or if you're watching the American version, Regenerator G1. The UFO then heads for Shinjuku, and after landing atop Tokyo City Tower, it begins to send out electronic tentacles to drain all of, the f inf uh, all of the data and files about Godzilla from all of Tokyo's computer networks. Katagiri orders the UFO destroyed using explosive charges planted inside uh, City Tower, but Shinoda, attempting to find out more about the aliens, is nearly caught in the blast. He escapes thanks to Yuki and Io, but just barely. All of the principals then assemble on a roof to observe what unfolds, and Shinoda is ready to have at Katagiri. There's no time, though, as Shinoda relays what he found out, the UFO's message of invasion and a new empire on Earth, revealing that the aliens are after Godzilla's DNA so that they may reform their bodies to function inside of our atmosphere. Godzilla arrives in Tokyo and again battles the UFO. The UFO is game, though, and traps Godzilla under a trio of skyscrapers that it knocks on top of him, then uses the data extraction tentacles to absorb some of the Organizer G1. The alien piloting the ship then makes himself known, a giant, graceful, squid-like monster called the Millennium. However, the Millennium is unable to control Godzilla's DNA and mutates again into a horrible-looking monster, part reptilian, but with mammalian traits as well, named Orga. Godzilla recovers and fights Orga along with the remains of the UFO. Finally destroying the UFO with his beam, Godzilla and Orga move into close range and battle tooth and claw. The alien continues to absorb more and more of Godzilla's DNA, begin to, and begins to look more and more like the King of the Monsters in the process, including growing, growing sharp spines down his back. Orga begins his final gambit, and tries to swallow Godzilla whole, extending his jaw out in, like a flower almost. This is the opening that the Big G needs, however, and he uses his nuclear pulse attack to utterly destroy Orga. Godzilla then heads to the rooftop where our human cast has been watching the battle. Godzilla stares, and then finally kills a defiant Katagiri, despite Shinoda's attempts to save him. And Godzilla stomps off, beginning a rampage through Tokyo. And that's our story. Um, okay. Godzilla 2000 remains a... and retains, I should say, a very special place in my heart, because it is the only Toho Godzilla film I have ever seen in the theater. Now, only two Godzilla films have been released in the United States in the theater in my lifetime. That was this one and Godzilla 1985. Now, when Godzilla 1985 came out, I was either four or five, depending on when it came out. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I don't have my notes in front of me. And I guess my dad decided that it wasn't really a good investment. 
Well, when this one came out, I was on uh, summer vacation from college, so I could go, and I didn't have to worry about that. Now, this is a great story in and of itself. Now, going to see this film was myself, my brother, his, uh, well, she's his wife now, but his girlfriend at the time, my good friend Bob, who's a huge Godzilla fan, and our friend uh, John, who's not really a Godzilla fan, but he's a big genre fan, so he's always up for something like this. Now, it was only playing in one theater. It wasn't a theater we would normally go to. Normally, we would have gone to what used to be the Sony theaters in Danbury, Connecticut, but we had to go to the smaller theaters in Carmel. The only place it was playing, playing in one theater. So we go in, and we sit down, we're all excited, and in front of us sits this, oh, this wicked fat kid. Okay, and I'm overweight, don't get me wrong, I don't pick on people for their weight, I've had a weight problem for a while, you know, uh, I got one of those metabolisms where I can eat whatever I want, and I just get fat as hell. So, believe me, I'm, I'm not one to pick on, but this kid was freaking, this kid was orca fat, you know, to quote uh, the usual suspects. And sitting down next to him is his, is his dad. And we know it's his dad, because every five minutes the kid's whining to his dad for something. But he's not just whining for his dad, he's making the word dad two syllables. Dad! Dad! I want popcorn! Dad! I want a soda! Dad! I want ice cream! Dad! Dad! The entire freaking movie like this. And I'm just sitting there getting more and more infuriated at this kid and this stupid dad who is giving his kid everything he wants. It's like, we talked about it after, he must be weekend dad, you know? He must be, this is his weekend with the kid, and so he's going to give him whatever he wants so that he'll side with uh, him over his mom when they go to arbitration. So we finally, finally, this kid just never shuts up despite stuffing his face and whining to his dad the entire time, okay? And we get to the end of the movie. And uh, after the movie, the guy turns around and looks at us, and he's like, oh, well, I guess we'll, we'll come see the next one here, right? And uh, <laughs> I've often said that I've had kind of a lifelong problem with anger issues, and uh, yeah, I almost, I almost attacked the guy. I was so mad at this. I was so mad. So our, our group goes outside, and um, this was a, it was a matinee, so we said, okay, we'll go get something to eat, right? And in the shopping center in Carmel, where the movie theater is, there's a pizzeria a couple of stores down, right? So I was like, okay, we'll go to the pizzeria. So we all walk down there, we open the door, we walk in, the goddamn kid and his dad are sitting there. So I was like, Needless to say, we did not eat pizza there. We went down the street to Friendly's and commiserated over this. And ugh, I will never forget that. It was just such a ridiculous thing. It's like, come on, really? Is <laughs> I just want to watch my Godzilla movie in relative peace. Is that possible? Clearly not. So, all you guys with parents, all you guys with kids out there, please don't let your kids act like that in the movie theater, please. Okay, the only time I've taken either of my kids to the movie theater was when my youngest was an infant and he was asleep. And he slept, he slept blissfully through Thor. And X-Men First Class, for that matter. So, the only thing, he didn't like when the Destroyer fired its beam in Thor. You would see his limbs go, Ugh! He would jump a little bit, but he didn't wake up. Anyway. <sighs> Godzilla 2000. As I said, seeing this in the theater was a real treat for me. Uh, just seeing that Toho logo on the big screen... Oh, that made me light up. That was the greatest uh, thing, and, and oh, I absolutely loved that. I'd love to see that again. It's uh, such a rare thing. You know, when, when the original Godzilla was released, uh, I think Rialto Films did a re-release of it. 
a couple of, well, about 10 years ago now. The, it was released, and it played in Atlanta, but it was right when I was moving from, I was moving from the Clemson area down to Aiken. And I was moving that weekend, and it was only playing the one, and I was like, and this didn't work out. So it was very frustrating. But in any event, that was great fun seeing the Toho logo. The very beginning of this film um, has Godzilla coming on land and Shinoda and his and uh, the rest of them chasing him in uh, his modified Jeep. And what's funny is that uh, we only see Godzilla in snippets because this was a redesigned Godzilla. The Hesai Godzilla had been the big, bulky, muscular-looking one for pretty much the entire run. This was the debut of the Millennium-style Godzilla, which was a more lean, with a longer face, the sharper teeth, the big, sharp spines all down his back. Now, this has become kind of the standard image for Godzilla, but it wasn't, it actually wasn't used in every Millennium film. Uh, GMK, uh, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All Out Giant Monsters Attack, and if you don't think that was translated from the Japanese, you got some, you know, you don't know how... Japanese titles work. Anyway, I kind of stumbled over that. Um, he looked different in that film, but most all the Millennium films basically use this look. And so it's very familiar to us now, but back in 2000, this was a revelation. It was like, whoa, you know, Godzilla looked streamlined and fast, and it, just, it was the, almost the opposite of how he looked in the Hesai. So they do a, a good job of only showing us bits and pieces of him uh, until we get the full reveal of his new look. And what's also interesting about this opening is uh, we get some comedy. Now the Hesai films were, v for the most part, very serious. There's a few moments of comic relief in them, but they never deal comedy with Godzilla. Godzilla's always played straight. Whereas here, we get a near miss very early on with the guy in the, um, he's in the lighthouse, and uh, and he's running away, and the thing goes to fall on him, and it lands just above him, and he's perfectly safe. And then, of course, the whole thing with Shinoda and Yuki's camera, and um, when they're chasing him around, it, there's, there's a little bit of comedy, there's a little bit of lightheartedness, which was a, not so much a staple, but certainly was present in the Showa films, and then went away almost entirely in the Hesai films. So it's kind of a welcome addition. It certainly set the tone for the Millennium films, which, as a general rule, were a little bit more light than the Hesai films. GMK, obviously the big uh, exception there, and the even the two Kiru Mechagodzilla films, they were you know they were very comic booky, so they had a little bit of a light touch. Um, the opening also kind of riffs on both Jurassic Park and the American Godzilla, uh, which I thought was funny. Uh, the American Godzilla, especially because we see him through fog a lot, and uh, you know we only get little bit, like I said, little glimpses and bits and pieces of him. Uh, Jurassic Park, we get to see some nice reaction shots. We also see uh, some liquid shaking as he's stomping by, which uh, again, obvious call out to Jurassic Park. Furthermore. When we get the reveal, it also becomes very clear that Godzilla has been scaled down somewhat. One of the um, logistical problems with the Hesai films on Toho's side was that Godzilla was getting bigger and bigger as the Hesai series went on, so they necessitated building the miniatures in a smaller and smaller scale, which represents a certain level of difficulty to get the amount of detail in a scale, uh, you know, really, really small scale. So making Godzilla a smaller size overall meant that they could work with some slightly 
bigger miniatures and it was it made it a little bit easier to film it was more you know more economical to do it this way also it allows for some really nice interaction between Godzilla and the humans another good Jurassic Park riff is when uh, Shinoda and Io and Yuki are in the Jeep and they come to the out of the tunnel they come out of a tunnel while chasing after him and it's a cliff face because Godzilla has destroyed the rest of the road well he turns down and looks right in their windshield right at them and he exhales and the force of his uh, exhalation destroys their windshield I mean he's looking right at them so it's a direct interaction with with human-sized um, humans in this case uh, which was not something that was really done in the SIR because the, the scale was so large it would have been comical so here it, it's put to good use uh, the effects in this film it's hard to it's hard to really criticize them because at the time they were really cutting edge a lot of them haven't aged well the suitmation still looks great the miniatures are great uh, or uh, Godzilla and Orga and even the Millennium have really cool designs the Millennium's only on screen for about a minute though the problem is the CG Toho was really just getting their feet wet with CG but they kind of went in they kind of jumped right into the deep end though because there's something like uh, I think the liner notes have like 500 CG shots in this movie and it's not so much that the CG doesn't look good it's a lot of times it's the compositing there's some really good um, traditional style composites where for instance we've got uh, Godzilla in the background and then a, a foreground plate with uh, people running you know towards the camera kind of thing oh there's a few of those that look really nice I mean Toa's been doing shots like that at this point for 40 years but a lot of times when they're trying to composite a CG element with a live-action element it just it just looks kind of it just looks bad and and it's it was the technology you know I mean it was the technology and the budget you consider that this film cost about 11 million dollars US and you know you compare that to the Amerigoji, which costs what ten times that without hyperbole, and you know it's it's hard to do CG on a budget like that. It just is, you know, a bad suitmation effect will look corny. A bad CG effect will just look awful. You know, this goes back to what we've talked about before about the eye and the brain recognizing a physical effect versus a CG effect. Um, for instance there's some shots where helicopters are composited onto a background and they just look terrible they really do look bad um, or there's scenes where uh, Godzilla is composite it's, it's a live-action Godzilla and he's composited so that he's like waist-deep in water and you can tell because it's, it jiggles just a little bit and the eye can see that okay he was composited onto that that's a live-action plate where of of a body of water that wasn't shot in the effects tank and they're compositing that in so they're they're kind of a mixed bag i i don't want to rank on them because really the for the time they were quite good i remember being really impressed with them when i first saw this film in 2000 but that's you know that's 12 years ago oh in fact a little over 12 years ago because it was a little bit um you know a month ago from when i'm recording this so it's hard. You know, it's, it's the problem with the CG. Really good CG will age well. Bad CG or even mediocre to average CG, not so much. So it, it's kind of a it's 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 kind of a rough area for me. I don't I don't want to criticize it too harshly, but there are some really you know standout bad effects in this movie. I don't know what just binged on the computer while I'm recording this. So sorry about that. Um, one actually really neat effect is when they're underwater. 
the CCI is underwater, they're looking at the uh, what the time they consider is an asteroid, and it's got all these volcanoes on top of it. And uh, Katagiri's uh, flunky goes, "Oh, it's like a it's like a forest of volcanoes." Actually, a really neat effect, just a simple miniature. You know, with the camera panning over it on a motion control, but it looks real nice. Um, dating this movie also is the uh, large number of first-generation iMacs that are used. The iMac was very popular in Japan. I can't imagine why such a kawaii computer would be so popular in Japan. Mm-hmm. But it was, so that was fun seeing those. I remember those first-generation iMacs. Oh, man, I remember laughing at the time. <laughs> Apple will never amount to anything. Nobody's going to buy this. You can stop laughing at me now. Uh, <laughs> now, interestingly, Toho, as is their normal um, uh, procedure, did send this film to Hong Kong to be dubbed for international release. Now, the international release dub has never been released in any form, because when this film was released over here in the States, a new uh, English uh, dub was commissioned by, um, what was it, Sony, TriStar, I guess, and... Uh, yeah, Sony TriStar. And so they commissioned a whole new uh, dubbing, which led to some really interesting choices for dialogue. Um, <laughs> the general uh, of the JSDF, when they're talking about the new missile that they're going to be using, this new armor-piercing missile that they're going to fire at Godzilla, he says that it's guaranteed to go through Godzilla like crap through a goose. It's like, I don't expect to hear something like that in a Godzilla film. And it gets stranger, because when Godzilla is moving towards Shinjuku, uh, a a shopkeeper comes out and says, Eh, what Godzilla? I don't see anything. And then you you hear the stomping, and he goes, Gott in Himmel! I think somebody was confusing their Axis powers there for a second. I mean... Uh, and then, not even a minute later, we're at Yuki's uh, newspaper office, and we see, we see Godzilla make his uh, approach, and the editor yells, Great Caesar's Ghost! Now, I can get behind that one, because I like Perry White, and I used to yell Great Caesar's Ghost as, uh, as a uh, expletive, because I went to a Catholic high school, so if you cursed, you got in big trouble, but they couldn't say anything to you for saying Great Caesar's Ghost, so I used to use that one a lot. Um, <laughs> so, it, it's... The dub, the dub is is fine. There, there's one really kind of egregiously bad bit uh, at the very, very end after Katagiri's been killed. Um, you know, everyone's kind of wondering why Godzilla left the rest of them alone and is going off to destroy Tokyo. And Shinoda says, "Well, maybe because there's a little bit of Godzilla in all of us." And that was that's just groan-inducing. From what I understand, and I don't have a Japanese dub, or excuse me, Japanese dub, a Japanese cut of the film, or a subtitled cut of the film, is that the line is actually more along the lines of, um, you know, we humans created Godzilla, or, you know, Godzilla is, is, you know, our responsibility, or something like that. It ties back to a line that he says earlier, when they discover the organizer G1, and they say, you could say we're its godparents. So the idea that humans created Godzilla, the responsibility falls with them. I, th- I understand how that can be said in there's a part of Godzilla in all of us, but all that sounds like is a little kumbaya crap as far as I'm concerned. So, Furthermore, when this was originally released in the theaters in the U.S., as Godzilla is doing his 360 destruction of Tokyo, a big optical title card came up that said, THE END? with a giant question mark. And uh, the between the there's a little bit of Godzilla in all of us and the the end, 
oh, and then the kid going dad the entire time. That just left a that those three things combined to leave a let me just it's in a bad way right then. Interestingly, on the DVD, the the end has been removed, much to my delight. So, um, also talking about the dub, Replicator G1, understandably. Uh, this doesn't make a lot of sense because the monster's name of Orga comes from the fact that it's Organizer G1. Of course, this is all kind of relative because Orga's name is not mentioned at all in the American cut. Uh, if his, I don't know if his name is mentioned in the Japanese one. I'm assuming it is. If nothing else, they just put it on a little, you know, title card underneath him. About nine minutes of footage was excised from the American version. No effect shots, as far as I understand. Um, a lot of it, it was cut for pacing. And, and it's interesting because even with nine minutes cut out, this film still has a little bit of a draggy bit in the middle. Uh, after the UFO uh, goes to Tokyo, Shinjuku to be specific, um, Godzilla has dis will disappear for about 30 minutes in the middle of the film, and it just kind of slows to a crawl. Uh, I think that could have been tightened up even a little bit further than that. The, whenever Godzilla is is on the screen or a factor in some way, this film moves really, really well. Actually, it, it's it's a pretty tightly made little film in those parts. The stuff with the uh, UFO, with Shinoda going through the, you know, climbing around in the building, trying to get to the data center, and uh, Katamira is setting, you know, setting up the bombs and stuff. I was like, mm, this is kind of boring. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't last too long. But like I said, anytime Godzilla is not on screen for 30 minutes in a Godzilla movie, or not even really referred to, that's that's a little suspect to me. Also, I'm really I'm kind of confused what category was hoping to accomplish. I don't know why he thinks that these bombs in the building are gonna hurt the UFO that's sitting on top of it. I'm I'm not a military commander, but that doesn't seem to make any sense. Uh, it also sets up perfectly for the UFO to do a riff on Independence Day and destroy a building by sending a shockwave through it. Remember, it's only a ripoff if your movie costs less than $10 million. This costs more than $10 million, so it's an homage. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see, there's a few other notes. Uh, at one point, uh, Yuki and Eo steal a red Supra, uh, Supra convertible, and this is only notable because my dad had an 86 and a half Supra, a white one, which was beautiful. And at this time, I don't think uh, Toyota was importing the Supra into the U.S., so we got a little glimpse of the Supra in action, so I thought that was funny. Um, Orga is a, Orga's a very cool-looking monster to me, because, like I said, he's got... He's definitely reptilian. He's, you know, he's got leathery skin, um, you know, claws, and, uh, you know, big, long kind of mouth. But he has design elements that are mammalian, because he's got... Uh, long arms and hands like a gorilla and he walks on his front knuckles like a gorilla. Now in most video game um, depictions of Orga he walks normal and his arms just swing freely but in the movie he definitely walks on his big front arms like a like an ape which I thought was really neat a reptile that moved like an, a mammal. Uh, further, he's got some design elements to him that are, I think, purposefully reminiscent of the American Godzilla. His jawline, for instance, looks a lot like the American Godzilla. The beady yellow eyes that he has also look like the American Godzilla. As he absorbs more and more uh, Organizer G1, he starts looking even more like the American Godzilla. And uh, at one point they call him a clone of Godzilla. 
Uh, so is that a commentary from Toho? I'm willing to bet yes, uh, but that's okay. Org is actually a fairly popular monster considering he's only appeared this one time. He appears in a lot of games, and I think a lot of people like him because he's kind of asymmetrical. His, instead of firing a weapon, a beam weapon from his mouth, he fires the plasma cannon from his, I think his, I guess his left shoulder. So, I think a lot of people like that for his asymmetry, and the fact that he just looks like a badass. He's a cool-looking monster. Speaking of beams, uh, Godzilla's beam is treated with reverence in this film, and this is a trend that would continue for pretty much the entire um, Millennium series of films. The first time he fires it, it is some 37 minutes into the film. It's when they're uh, when he's battling the JSDF. Uh, actually, it's when he, he's fighting the JSDF and then he's fighting the UFO, because the UFO is charging the plasma cannon and he charges the, the beam right back. And it, we see the power building, not only with his spikes glowing, but we see the red energy building up in his mouth, and then when he releases it, it's this massive torrent of energy. Uh, this kind of love given to the beam would continue in all the films. It would kind of reach its uh, zenith in GMK when uh, you know it's treated like a nuclear explosion every time he fires it. But it, it was the beam looks great. It's it's uh, reddish orange instead of the traditional blue. Again, another change, another thing that was seen as revolutionary. Uh, Godzilla's beam would change color several times in the uh, Millennium series because. Uh, none of the films, except for the two Kiru Mechagodzilla films, are connected, so you can do kind of do whatever you want each time. Uh, let's see. Any notes? Oh, a couple interesting things. We see a little minor character a couple of times through the film, one of Shinoda's uh, associates, who is very clearly supposed to be a sort of salaryman character, and anyone familiar with Japanese cinema will know what the stereotype salaryman is. Salaryman was a series of comedies in the um, late 50s into the 60s, I think they even ran into the 70s, that basically were sort of satires of Japanese business life. Think about a show like The Office or something, but then set it in like the Showa period of Japan, and you get some of that you know ridiculous set satirical over the top humor with the Salary Man, which I I thought was funny just getting that cut in there again, more comic relief and also a nod to Toho because they did produce a number of Salary Man uh, comedies throughout the uh, Showa period. Also, at one point, we see Shinoda and Eo at home, and Eo's uh, Eo's cooking dinner, and Shinoda's uh, supposed to be chopping cabbage, but he's he's reading an article about uh, Godzilla sightings. And um, in the background, the television is on, and the dialogue that we hear is from the movie Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, which is the uh, old Ray Harryhausen film. And this is this is fun. Well, I mean, it, it's 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 good dub because, in fact, it. It is a film about a flying saucer coming to Earth to conquer, just like Earth vs. the Flying Saucers is. But what's really ironic to me, for the purposes of this show, is that the voices that the alien translator has in Earth vs. the Flying Saucers was the model for the voice that I use in the opening to this show. So that really made me laugh to hear the uh, dialogue from Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Like, hey, I love that voice. I, I tried to do that voice. So uh, that That... That just really cracked me up. Good movie, by the way. If you ever seen Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, check it out. Uh, and let's see anything. I think that's about all the notes I have here. Um, it's a it's a good movie. You know, at the end of the day, it's not 
one of the heavier, you know, uh, you know, movies that gets a lot of attention. Godzilla 2000 is almost forgotten about in the Millennium Era. Everybody talks about GMK. Everyone talks about the two uh, Mechagodzilla movies. They talk about Final Wars. They forget about Godzilla 2000. I think because when it was released over here, it kind of got played for laughs a little bit, especially on the commercials. Uh, the commercials featured Katagiri's yelling, Godzilla! You know, which kind of gave people, like, think old UHF flashbacks. And they had, um, you know, the, the tagline for the film was, get ready to crumble. You know, so it was played for laughs a little bit. It wasn't as bad as it could have been in that sense. And the dubbing itself is, is actually fine. I mean, I don't have a real problem with anything. I mean, the crap through a goose makes me laugh, so that's... You know, at the end of the day, if it makes you laugh, that's that's worth it. You know, that's not something to get upset about. But I think Godzilla 2000 is kind of unfairly overlooked. I think it's a good movie. Does it have its problems? Sure. The effects in some spots really don't hold up very well. And the pacing, that, that middle act, it needs to be cut down a little bit. I'm telling you, the second half of that middle act. But beyond that, it's a fun, enjoyable Godzilla movie. You know, it's Godzilla fighting a UFO with something we really hadn't seen before. I mean, anytime Godzilla runs into UFOs in the Showa films, he just blasts them to pieces. And here, this is a big UFO that's putting up, and we get a new monster. We get two new monsters, technically. I mean, the Millennium, and then Orga. And Orga's a brand new monster, a brand new design. He's different than anything that had come before or after. You know, we get a, a pretty decent human story with Shinoda and Katagiri's rivalry. Uh, it's 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 a well-made little movie. It's just it doesn't get the attention I think of some of its more ambitious brethren, and that ultimately may be the biggest knock on Godzilla 2000. You know, this film was was rushed into production. You know, Toho had planned to um, after Godzilla vs. Destoroya, you know, in 1995, they had planned basically to kick back for 10 years and let Sony make, uh, you know. Godzilla 98, there was going to be a sequel to that, and then probably another sequel to that. And then in 2005, they were going to pick up with the uh, Japanese films again. But after the box office of Godzilla 98 seemed to preclude any sequels being made, any theatrical sequels anyway, Toho rushed Godzilla 2000 into production to get, you know, basically to reclaim Godzilla. They didn't want it sitting as the last memory of Goji for you know, uh, seven years to be Godzilla 98, and then, you know, they'd have that uphill battle, so, and the story goes that they thought Godzilla 2000 was good enough to release in the U.S., so they, they licensed it. The conspiracy theory in me, conspiracy theorist in me, excuse me, says that they got this movie released over here to say, hey, 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 we're not abandoning the Godzilla you know and love, this is the real Godzilla, not that other one, so... Is that true? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows that except the, you know, the people in the know at Sony TriStar and at Toho, and, and they don't return my calls. I don't. I don't know why. Um, but Godzilla 2000 is available on DVD. Uh, it is available on Netflix, not for Watch Instant, but uh, you can rent it on um, on DVD. It used to be on Crackle.com. As of this recording, it's not up there. They do cycle their films in and out, so I don't know if it'll be coming back. A lot of the Millennium um, and Hesai Godzilla films that were on Crackle have been taken down, so I don't know if their license ran out or what the deal was. But So if you haven't seen Godzilla 2000, I would recommend checking it out. It's a fun film. It's got some neat monsters, some neat uh, action sequences, a great design for Godzilla, and it sets the tone for 
the new era of Godzilla, the Millennium films. We're getting away from the kind of, uh, you know, heavy, um, meaningful, <laughs> for lack of a better word, uh, films of the Hesai era, and we were getting back and having a little bit more fun, something a little bit that was a throwback to the show of movies again. And uh, it delivers, it's an entertaining movie on that level, and I really enjoy it. It's not the greatest one, it's not even the best one from the Millennium series, but it's certainly worth watching, and certainly worth uh, an afternoon or an evening's time. Get some buddies together and watch this one. Alright, I am going to take a quick break, and we are going to be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happening to you. You're... Angel. Oh, Reed, not you too! What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly! We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power! I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth, and half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're but palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. Got me dying to those powerful cousins on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am a thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatots, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to let be drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.libsyn. Alright, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive, and it's time for a little bit of listener feedback. Now, I put out the call a couple episodes to go to get uh, you guys to write in your emails, leave blog posts, leave forum posts, and we've gotten uh, a little bit more feedback. I'd really like to hear from you guys, so if you have something to say, you like something on the show, you didn't like something on the show, you liked a film that I talked about, you didn't like a film that I talk about, you've never even seen a film that I'm talking about, send me in some email, leave a post on the blog, uh, to hit me up on the forum, all that stuff is going to come in the outro to the show at the end. So, we did get one email, I'd like to read that right now, this email comes from Mr. Chad Adams, and Chad's email is subject, no subject. Chad goes, hey man, new listener here. Actually, this is the first podcast I've ever been interested by. 
I'm a huge Daikaiju fan and a classic fam film in general. Wait, let me go back a minute. This is the first podcast I've ever been interested by. It makes me feel so proud to know that Earth Destruction Directive was Chad's first podcast that he actually listened to and was interested in. That really warms the cockles of my cold, shriveled, dead heart, and I do really appreciate that, Chad. Thank you. Uh, Chad continues, I'm a huge Daikaiju fan and classic film fan in general. That works out, so am I. I stumbled upon your podcast two days ago and have been listening intently, currently listening to episode 11 as I write. Wow, that's a lot of episodes in a row. I mean, we've only got, this is number 16. So, you listened to most of the show by the time you wrote me. That's thumbs up on that one, man. Chad continues, I would like to hear a review of Varan, either release, as I've always loved this underappreciated monster. Uh, Varan is definitely on the list of non-Godzilla Toho films that we're going to be talking about. Um, I haven't really broached them yet. The only non-Godzilla Toho we've done is King Kong Escapes, which was part of King Kong Month. But my theory or not my theory, but my thinking is that we're probably going to do those in order. So Varan will actually be, be one of the earlier ones that we do. Varan came around fairly uh, fairly early on in the uh, Pantheon, which is... Uh, there's a whole story behind the history of Varan, which we'll get into when we cover it, but definitely a film we're going to be covering, Chad. Uh, Chad continues, Also wondering if you plan on elaborating this podcast to include American giant monster films, such as any of the Harryhausen or Burt I. Gordon films. Regardless, you can count on another faithful listener, Chad Adams. P.S. Know anything about whether or not the rumors of a new American Godzilla film are true? Uh, Okay, to take your points in the order in which you made them. um, American Giant Monster Films. I get this question a lot, and I'm a big, big fan of the Ray Harryhausen films. I don't know that that's really really the target of this this show. Uh, The Harryhausen films cover a, a large... Uh, you know, swath of genre going from, you know, uh, mythology with Jason and the Argonauts to kind of fantasy with uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and the other Sinbad films, uh, science fiction with uh, 20 Million Miles to Earth, and even just straight monster movies like um, It Came from Beneath the Sea. I would like to do Harryhausen. I almost wonder if Harryhausen would be better suited, maybe not on Earth Destruction Directive, but perhaps as a series of specials on The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, or perhaps on uh, special episodes of Two True Freaks. I would love to talk about those. I'm a big fan. My dad's a big fan, so growing up, my brother and I used to watch those films all the time. And, uh, you know, I love the stop motion. It's so much different than the suitmation, but I love both techniques. I would really like to talk about Harryhausen, so I'm going to have to give that some thought and maybe talk it over with Scott and Chris and, and the hero and uh, see where, where we can slot that in. As far as Bert I. Gordon, I'd love to talk about some Bert, Bert I. Gordon, you know. I will find a place to do that. That may be on the vault. We may do a, a Mr. Big, as Bert I. Gordon was often referred to, because of his ability to shoot films with double exposure to make things look giant. Uh, maybe we'll do a Bert I. Gordon celebration or retrospective over on the vault. Uh, and regarding the American Godzilla film, well, considering that uh, Mr. Lomax, my associate over on the Two True Freaks board, just today posted Legendary Pictures' um, newest press release regarding the American Godzilla film being released in 2014, I'd say, yeah, chances are it's probably going to happen. Uh, Goji's going to be full CG, is all we know, really, at this point. Uh, haven't seen anything of the story. Uh, none of the principles of the cast. So, 
it's kind of up in the air right now as far as you know what what's involved with it other than it's a big CG goji and that Godzilla is supposed to look more like his traditional look as opposed to the Godzilla we got in 1998 who was clearly a different monster uh, you know personally I'm of mixed feelings about this. I'm a little hesitant after the huge, huge hype for Godzilla 98 that really failed to live up to expectations. But the same token, I, have, I feel better about what I'm hearing so far, if that makes any sense. Um, at this point, I'm taking kind of a watch and wait. Same with the Guillermo del Toro's film Pacific Rim, which I've heard really good things about. It's a film about giant monsters in the Pacific, um, and they're being opposed by humans wearing giant robot suits. It sounds like a uh, super robot anime come to life, which uh, there's worse things that can come to life than a super robot anime. It could be a real robot anime. But anyway, uh, but as far as the American Godzilla, I'm just taking a wait-and-see approach. I got, I've gotten some requests to do some more news on the show. I only do the show once a month, so news is a little hard. But once we get some solid info starting to come out, of both camps, the, the legendary Godzilla and um, Pacific Rim, I will be covering them on here. I'll do some special commentaries on that. Chad, thank you very much for writing in. I hope you enjoyed the balance of the episodes that you have to listen to, and I hope you are enjoying this episode as you're listening to it. Remember, if you want to be on the show, go ahead and send an email in or leave a blog post, leave a forum post, hit me on Twitter, you know, however you want to do it, and all that information will be in the outro of the show. So uh, if you want to get in touch, take a listen to that and get in touch with the show in the manner of your choosing. Uh, now, on the next episode, what are we going to be covering? Well, we are going to be branching out a little bit from anything we have covered before. We're going to be moving into the realm of television, specifically tokusatsu television. I have been on a huge, huge Ultraman kick over the last couple of months. And so I'm going to be doing an episode where we're going to introduce Ultraman to the listeners of the Earth Destruction Directive. We're going to be talking about the whole franchise as a whole, and we're going to be talking specifically about the original Ultraman, uh, which is available on DVD from Mill Creek Entertainment. So definitely go pay. It's like super cheap. You can get the whole series for like 10 bucks. And it's got the original English dubs for when the show was aired in Hawaii, and it's got new Japanese language uh, subtitles. So I've been watching it subbed. It's beautiful. It's great stuff. I'm going to try to get a guest on for this one. I have never done that myself. Uh, folks who know who listen to The Vault know that I appear with a whole ensemble on uh, that show. We've got a, a four-man team at this point between Chris Honeywell, the hair metal hero, uh, Steve Engel and myself, but I don't do any of the production on that show. I, I literally get on Skype and I talk for an hour and magic happens and the show is posted. So this one is all me. So I'm going to try to get a guest on for that one. Um, the person who is my guest knows who he is. We're going to do what we can uh, to try and get that sorted out and get that recorded. So uh, everybody get now get ready for some Ultraman. We're going to uh, bring in the uh, legendary hero of uh, Subaraya Television onto the Earth Destruction Directive. But that is for next time. This is this time still. So until said next time, keep them stomping.
This has been Earth Destruction Directed, a Daikaiju podcast, hosted and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, and presented by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. All characters, stories, images, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a fan work designed to honor the rich history of Japanese giant monster movies and culture. The opinions expressed on Earth Destruction Directive are my own, and I receive no money for this work. You can send feedback to our email address, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. All feedback is welcome, and if you send it an email, I will respond to you on the show. Alternately, you can leave a comment at the home of Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet, earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. You can also check out the Two True Freaks Forum at www.forum4geek.com. And you can find me on Twitter with the handle Eljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And be sure to head to twotruefreaks.libson.com to check out all the other fine quality Two True Freaks podcasts available. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.